So if you have your Bibles, today's reading will come from uh, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 begins with, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we, es we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to, to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell you of, of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Brandon, for reading that whole chapter for us. We are going to be focusing on just a portion of that passage on verses 5 through 9 this morning of, of Hebrews 2. But I wanted to be able to give us a little bit more of the broad context and the flow of the letter. If you join me once more in prayer. We ask that God would bless this word. Father, it is only by your mercy 
that any of us are here this morning. It is only by your grace that I can stand here with your very words in front of me. Believing them, cherishing them, and today proclaiming them that others might believe more, cherish your son more, be strengthened in their faith. Father, we set about a supernatural task. Nothing that is of the flesh or that is of me will suffice, Lord. I ask your spirit to move and be active that the preaching of your word would be a supernatural event because these are the very words of the creator of the universe given to us. Father, let them have their intended effect. Conform us to the image of Christ. Put the body of sin to death. Be glorified in honor, Father. Pass this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our look at the first few chapters of the book of Hebrews. This is a way of reminder about where we're at in this letter. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic believing Jews, sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And these, these Jewish believers were, were facing extreme pressure from non-believing Jews and from the Greco-Roman world in general to turn away from this newfound faith that was theirs. We need to remember that following Christ for them, publicly identifying with Christ, was costly for them. There were some among them who had already determined that cost was too high, and they returned to the religion of the now unbelieving Jews, hoping that they could find greater comfort and ease. The author of Hebrews goes to great letter, great efforts in this letter to show them why there is nothing left for them to turn back to. Christ is greater in every way to everything that they had known before. To turn their backs on Christ would not just be to turn their backs on a new religion, on a new way of life, but it would be to turn their backs on the hope of the religion of their fathers. So far in Hebrews, we have looked at how Jesus Christ is the greater revelation of God. The revelation in Him is greater than the revelation through the prophets and their dreams and visions. We've also looked at how Jesus is superior to the angels. This week we'll continue to look at Jesus' superiority over the angels as we focus on man's place on this unfolding story of redemption and how this, this place of man, this design for mankind in creation, both anticipated Christ in the beginning and how it looks because of Him in the restoration. Well, we're not going to read these chapters this morning, but if you were to go back to and read Daniel chapters 7 through 10, you would read of a number of terrifying visions that were given to Daniel concerning 
God's plan concerning the future of the nation of Israel and the nations of the world. After receiving these dreams, Daniel spent three weeks in anguish, seeking in prayer for answers, wanting to understand what did it mean. These terrified him. And he spent that time praying for forgiveness and salvation for God's people. At the end of these three soul-crushing weeks, Daniel was brought comfort by a messenger of God. The messenger of God revealed to Daniel that his prayers had been heard. The only reason that he had not arrived sooner with the message of comfort for Daniel is that he had been detained by the prince of Persia and only was able to break free and come to Daniel with the help of the archangel Michael. That messenger told Daniel about the angelic powers guiding the courses of the nations. They were called the princes of the nations, citing the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And Michael was named as the prince of Israel. This messenger told Daniel about all these things in answer to these visions that he had had. And this encounter with this messenger from God to Daniel as well as from the, the Greek Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy 32.8, recounts God's dividing the nations according to the number of angels of God. And that paints a picture, when we apply this to Daniel's vision, that can give us a good sense of a context for our discussion as it continues in the passage in Hebrews. Recalling the first vision of, in Daniel 7 of the four beasts rising out of the chaos and asserting dominion over the earth. Each beast is revealed to be a nation rising to power and defeating the nations that were there before it. Consider this in light of the angelic forces guiding the nations on earth. These rebel spirits using men to war for supremacy. The forces of darkness yield nation after nation against God's people and against the salvation that was promised to come to them. The salvation that was promised to come from among them. Throughout all of this, God's holy angels were always at His side, attending to the will of the Ancient of Days. Ultimately, His enemies were brought into subjection. And dominion would be given to the one who was like a son of man. That great king rules forever with all of his holy saints who sit on the thrones of the kingdoms of the earth. On that vision given to Daniel, we get a glimpse of the unfolding of history. Spiritual forces for a time rule over the course of nations of men. Yet one day, one who is a man, yet one who is more than a man, will reign over everything. Carry that context with us back now as we focus on verses 5 through 9 of Hebrews 2, where the author says, For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, 
We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So though, though angelic forces now operate in many ways as, as rulers in a sense of this present age, it is not how it was from the beginning, and it is not how it will be in the age to come. By design, in creation, the angels were given no dominion. The angels had no right to rule. In eternity, the angels will also have no dominion given to them. For he did not subject to angels the world that is to come. See, at creation, dominion was given to those who were in God's own image, to men. In the age to come, dominion is given to God who became man and to those he raises with him to glory. In this present age, however, in this time in between, we do see angels administering influence and rule though after the earthly ministry of Christ, not in the freedom that they once enjoyed. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We read in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In some of these places in Scripture, the devil is called the God of this world. That he exercises authority temporarily granted to him by God. Though he will ultimately and eternally be cast out. These demonic forces are a defeated enemy. Yet in this present age, they do possess an authority in creation. It is the age to come that is not to be subjected to angels. In that age, their illegitimate dominion that they have experienced since the fall will be taken away from them. See, this, this present reign of darkness... This, this only dominion that the angels will ever know is temporary and it is limited. This present order is coming to an end. Indeed, it has already been defeated, even if that victory has not yet been fully realized in our experience. Even in this age, the demonic forces are only allowed as much influence as is fitting to God's eternal purposes, as is fitting to God's good plan. God's good purposes and providence. Indeed, they are powerless to prevent the spread of the gospel as it goes out triumphant among every tribe, tongue, and nation. Satan himself is powerless to keep the nations deceived, to keep them in abject blindness to the light of the message of the victory of Christ the King. And even the present authority and power that the angels do have 
is only under their permission according to the eternal will of God. These spiritual forces, those that are for Him and those that are against Him, are ultimately acting about to bring the end of their dominion in creation. No, the earth is not going to be subjected to angels. The angels will instead be active in subjecting it once again to man. So, what is the place of man in all of this? In all these, this talk of the angelic forces and authorities and rule, what is the place for man? Well, the author of Hebrews, after reminding his audience that the, that the angels will not have dominion in the, in the age to come, he quotes from Psalm 8, 4-6. through 6, And he does that from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And even though he chooses not to cite the psalmist directly, as he says, it, is, it has been testified to somewhere, that, that does not mean he's ignorant. This is not a case of, of the, the author of Hebrews saying, eh, it's somewhere in the Bible. It's not Tevye saying, well, somewhere in the book it says something about a chicken. It's not that kind of thing where he's unaware of where it comes from. And it's not something where he's actually downplaying the importance of the authority of Scripture. The author of Hebrews clearly sees everything in Scripture as the very words of God. To him, it is not so much important who God is speaking through, but the authority is the very words of God Himself, that it is God who is speaking Our author consistently shows a very high view of the divine authorship of Scripture. He does not hesitate to view it all as the voice of God. If you look with me at at Psalm 8, I'm going to read the entire thing. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in their place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, first off, we need, to, we need to recognize that Psalm 8 is not primarily making a Christological claim. This is a passage celebrating the wonder and the glory of man in creation. The wonder that God would bestow so much glory and honor upon the works of His hand. There is glory, there is grandeur 
in man's creation. God made mankind in his own image. God made man lower in creation only to himself. He gave man dominion over creation. Even so, while we need to recognize this, this psalm is not primarily making a claim about the Messiah, but mankind in general, we also need to understand that the fullness of man's destiny, the fullness of the glory of man, is only possible because of Christ. It's only possible in Christ. Mankind fell short of his created design. Mankind brought ruin on himself. And not just on himself, on all of creation. Well, the author of Hebrews favors the Septuagint's translation at the end of verse 5 of, this, of Psalm 8, citing man as being created a little lower than the angels. Depending on which translation you look at, you might see this as being translated a little lower than the heavenly beings, or as a little lower than the angels, or as a little lower than God. From the Hebrew, this translation most naturally reads a little lower than God. Literally, it says a little lower than Elohim. And while there are times that Elohim can be used to signify angels or even, even false gods, the most common usage of the word points to the true God, to Yahweh. This verse ultimately points to man's being created a little lower than God. And what that means is our place in creation is in direct relation to God Himself, created in His image. We were not created in relation to the angels or to the beasts of the earth. Well, were it not for the fact that the inspired author of Hebrews preferred the Greek tra translation to support his point, if it weren't for that, I would say we ought to defer to the more literal reading from the Hebrew. Yet, as we have it before us, I believe that both translations point to complementary truths. Both of the translations of that passage point to a unique and important aspect of what man is. The New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were given insight into new and fuller meaning of texts. There are, there are a number of times where a New Testament author will quote something from the Old Testament and explain it that this is fulfilling, what we see today is fulfilling that prophecy. Or this, this is living out and acting out what was spoken about before. They have a license that because the Spirit of God was moving in them and through them, giving them greater revelation understanding about what was before and what has come after. How they understood the Old Testament teaches us how we ought to understand the Old Testament. Though, it does not grant us the same authority, the same freedom to look for new meanings for ourselves. We are not infallibly inspired by the Spirit of God to bring new meaning to bring new revelation from God to Scripture. 
We need to learn from the insight they were, they were given, yet we need to understand that we are not given that same kind of new insight. The Spirit does indeed testify within us to the truth of what is in Scripture. The Spirit of God does indeed help us to recall what has been taught in His Word, to understand what it means to believe it, to internalize it, to live it. But we are not given the same freedom to have new interpretations. That man is lower only to God and yet somehow lower than the angels is true and is in no way a contradiction. Man in his creation and again in his future destiny is lower only to God. Before the fall and again after the consummation of the future age to come, Man was and will be greater than the angels. Man was created for a higher position than the angels. We see this in the fact that man was given dominion over creation. And that ultimately, those who are in Christ will reign with Christ in the age to come. But in the meantime, in the age between the fall and the consummation... Man is under a curse and has made himself lower than the angels. That lower station is the result of our own actions. There is is no one for us to blame but ourselves. We were given a great honor, yet we, through our federal head Adam, despised that place in creation. And we lowered ourselves even as he sought to elevate himself. Well, I think with good intentions, largely because I think we want to guard against idolatry and thinking too highly of ourselves. But we have a tendency to give very little or no attention to the wonder and the glory that is mankind. The wonder and glory that there is about being made in the image of God, unique in all of creation. And I want to be clear when I say that. I'm not talking here of the glory of man in his rebellion not the glory of man in his corrupt state, though truly not all of that glory was lost. I'm primarily talking about the glory of man in the design of God in creation and, again, in eternity beyond. Men, not the angels, not any other creature in creation are made in the image of God. In creation, God sent those creatures He made in His image, the race of men, as sovereign over creation. Man was set in dominant dominion over creation as representatives of God Himself. In man's dominion, God possessed dominion. In man, God dwelled in a way in creation. And later on, God the Son literally came to dwell in creation. God's image and likeness in creation giving way to God Himself entering into His creation. Man was created in wonder and glory in the very likeness 
of God. Can we let that just settle in for a moment? When God spoke of creating man, He spoke of creating him according to His own image, to His very likeness. But, for what purpose? Ultimately, it was for the purpose of preparing a way for the eternal Son to enter into creation, all while remaining eternal God. No other creature, not even the lofty angels, could have made an acceptable vehicle for God entering into creation. God could not have come to earth to dwell in, in creation as a plant. A plant does not bear His image. He could not have come to, de, to dwell in creation as a dumb beast. No rodent or bird or canine or feline or bovine could suit the incarnate God. They do not bear His image. They were not created according to His likeness. Not even the angels were suitable. Only mankind bears the very image and likeness of God necessary for the incarnation. See, in a way, the fall of man gives way for the uniqueness of the Son of God in humanity. Had man been held in perfection, any incarnation of God in his creation would have found the Son of God as one of many perfect and righteous image bearers. To be sure, he still would have been unique in eternal splendor, yet there would have been a similar perfection and purpose in creation. The fall of man made it so that when the Son of God entered into creation, he would be the unique figurehead of humanity. Humanity as it was meant to be and would yet become. Because of the fall, Jesus uniquely was man. He uniquely was God in creation. As a result, redeemed mankind will ultimately be brought to the heights of their eternal design, partakers of the divine nature. God's presence, and by His image and likeness, and the indwelling of the Spirit, God walking on the earth. Christ is for all eternity first among His brothers, yet He will make us like Him. I would not dare to speak those words if I did not find them in Scripture. Man created with the crown of glory and honor. Man was appointed over the works of God's hands. All things were put in subjection to man. The holy ones of God, the race of men, destined to sit on the thrones of the kingdoms of the world. But we do not see that yet. You would be right on, in pushing back on me on this point. You'd be right to push back, and that's not what we see. That's not what we see when we look out. That is not what man is right now. One commentator I read 
wrote that our current experience mocks the lofty claims of the psalmist and the author of Hebrews about the position of man. That our experience somehow is a, makes a mockery of what is promised. So as if to re- respond to that claim, the author of Hebrews, after he quotes from Psalm 8, continues. And he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in its subjection to Him. So mankind was given dominion over creation. Yet, we do not have to look very hard or very far to realize that not all things are currently in subjection to man. Just just think about man's present state. After looking upon the glory and grandeur of man in creation, think about where we're at now. Man is incredibly fragile. Men are born helpless. They suffer from all kinds of infirmities. And in very short order, they die. They they labor, they plant, they work in anguish with no guarantee that they will be able to reap the rewards for their labor, that they will be able to eat the fruit from the labor of their hands. We, we constantly war against the forces of a world that groans against what has been done to it and against the forces of darkness that we were created to reign over. And we do all of this simply to survive for the few years that we are granted on this earth. Man was given dominion over a perfect creation, but we spurned that dominion and a cursed creation battles to subject us rather than being subjected to man but even in the horror of man's fall and the curse of all of creation the glory of man's creation is yet revealed just think about it this way the devastation of a fall whether that's physical, spiritual, or metaphorical, the devastation of that fall is measured by the distance from the apex of the heights that were reached to the depths of the bottom below that is struck. So the greatness of a fall is reflected by how, how high and how low. What greater distance could there be than being created in the very image and likeness of God. This this very image and likeness that the eternal Son of God was destined to incarnate and then fall to such depths that all of creation was cursed on our account. The very creation that man was made to rule now wards against him and takes his life. And in the case of the fallen angels, creation even rules over man. All of creation was given in subjection to man. After the fall, angels, both holy and those that are fallen, are given authority over this present world. And what we have now is pictured in Daniel's visions. The princes of the nations wielding influence over men and striving for or against God's order and plan. Creation is clearly not now in subjection to man. 
We do not see all things subject to man. So what hope is there that things are going to be any different in the age to come? If we don't see it now, what hope is there that we will see it? Well, the author of Hebrews continues in verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So it is true that we do not yet see creation in complete subjection to man. Yet we do see one man who is already crowned with glory and honor. Christ's exaltation is the hope and is the proof that all things will be subjected to man. Christ is our representative. He is our head. Christ is mankind's exaltation and dominion. Man was created glorious. We fell, abdicating our dominion over creation. And then we found that authority had been taken up by the very pretender who convinced us to doubt the Word of God. The very one who told Adam and Eve in the garden that they would be made like God, convinced them to be made like, that they wanted to be more than they were created to be. That very pretender then took up the authority in the creation that man was created to have dominion over. The Son of God had to be made a little lower for a little while than the angels in order to elevate mankind once again to preeminence in creation. The Son of God came down to us so He could bring us up to Him. The Son of God surely was eternally above the angels. He is their Creator. His name is infinitely greater than the name that they bear. He is God. Man is currently below the angels because of the fall, yet God lowered Himself in order to restore mankind to the greatness of our design. In essence... The devil stole dominion from man. Then he and his angels rule over the curse, under the curse. And then God sends his angels to contend with them and against them in this grand unfolding narrative of redemption. Christ himself is the victor. The angels and forces under his banner work to subject the powers of darkness under his feet. And somehow, in all of this, His bride is raised to glory, exalted to reign with Him for eternity. See, man was created to rule, and man will rule for eternity. What happens between these two reigns has the providential result of setting God as Lord and Sovereign over and within creation both by right and by victory. Eternal worship of our God will flow from two distinct classes of wondrous beings. 
each with separate paths to that glory and with unique and plentiful reasons to sing God's praises forever. Glory and more glory to the honor and the praise and the majesty and the holiness of God. See, our text tells us that because of the suffering of death, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. So by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. The restoration of man and the glory that is won in that victory came at a terribly high cost. That high cost only serves more clearly to illustrate the magnitude of the fall. How great man fell that it was such a cost to overcome it. It is by Christ's death that we have life. In Christ we have the penalty. We have paid the penalty. The burden is gone for abdicating our rule, for rebelling against the image and likeness of our Creator. There could be no other means for God to restore man into Himself. Man had to die. In Christ, man died. In Christ, man was raised up again to glory and honor that they had known in their creation. So what does it mean that Jesus tasted death for us? It means that every sip of the cup of the wrath of God that would destroy us forever, even though a sip of that would destroy us, He drained the entire cup. He drained every last drop of the wrath of God on our behalf. Well, you may ask, Pastor, how does this understanding of the glory of man in God's design and creation, how does that help us to love God or to love our fellow man? How does it help us to be more faithful to God's law that is written on our hearts? Because isn't that what all this is supposed to inspire us to do? Well, for one, it is good and right that we understand the glory of man in God's creation, even though in this present age we see it marred and corrupted, because it is a necessary truth in affirming Jesus' superiority in every way to the angels. Back to the, the thrust of the argument that the author of Hebrews is working from. He is greater So even when he became man, he is greater because man's destiny was always greater than the angels. There is nothing contradictory in saying that God, eternal creator, creator and absolute Lord of all, became lower than the angels. There was a great purpose in this act. There was a previous glory of God's image and likeness to be restored. God so loved his image and likeness that he sought to restore it to its purpose and design. It is in no way inferior to take on a lesser position when the purpose of that act is to raise up an entire race to the glory of its destiny. If we are to truly believe that Jesus is greater than the angels, we have to see that man, as he was, as he will be, as he is now in Christ, is greater than the angels. The lower uh, lower position that we now experience is only temporary. Beyond that, think of the implication this has on our understanding of the sanctity of life. 
Think of the implications of this truth in contrast to the blatant idolatry of the satanic agendas calling on us to prefer the life of an animal or a plant to the life of one who's created in the very image of God. Man in all his modern wisdom fallen so low as to prefer the worship of earth and animals, carelessly discarding human life as though it is garbage if it offers the slightest inconvenience to their perceived happiness and agenda of self-worship. It is also of great benefit to understand the glory of man in creation is because, because when only when we see the height of glory in man's creation as well as the cost of redemption that we will truly understand the horror of sin. Remember that the magnitude of a fall is judged both by the heights that were reached and the depths that were fallen to. This is the benefit of proper perspective. The higher our starting point the greater the fall, the more wondrous the grace of God that saved us, even from the bottom of the pits of sin and despair. It is good for us to look upon the glory set before us because it gives us strength and hope when this life is filled with trials and sorrows. Even though we do not yet see creation in subjection to man, We do not yet see the promise fulfilled. We have the victory of Christ's resurrection and His ascension as our proof, as our guarantee and our confidence of what will be. We have such a tendency to live as though we are defeated. We are so prone to dwelling on our failures and the trials of this fallen world that we do not live in the hope and the reality of what Christ has purchased and won for us. What do we have to fear? What is there that we ought not be confident of our ability to overcome? Just because we do not yet see what is promised does not mean we cannot draw strength and walk in confidence, knowing that in Christ we are more than conquerors. In Christ we have the victory. In Christ we are new creations, glorious, splendid, righteous, and holy. We are called time and again in Scripture to live according to what we know to be true and not according to what we feel or see. Live according to what you know to be true, not according to what the enemy would have us believe is inevitable or what the enemy would have us believe is beyond hope. What is man? Man is glorious beyond comparison in what has been created. Why? Because God is glorious. Because Christ is glorious. Don't ever forget that truth. Don't let the world define the meaning and the purpose of man for you. Our society is so polluted and diluted their understanding of what mankind is that they no longer even have the vocabulary to describe the purpose, the function, the natural order of our species. They have lost the will to even speak to the basic things of the propagation of the species. They have lost the ability and the will to even recognize what is male, what is female. 
As God created us in His image, male and female, He created them. This world sees a fractured image that is man in his fallen state. And rather than looking back to the image from which that has been marred, trying to piece together the beauty and the wonder that is ours, rather than looking to God, they further distort, they further confuse, and they seek to shatter any any remnants of creation's design. And if you doubt that, just simply... Look up online sometime the latest classifications that people are making up for themselves and according to their identity, what they want to be called, thought of, thinking that they can merge themselves with animals or the opposite sex or a different age. They're inventing new ways to try and shatter the remnants of the image of God in man. Beloved, we must understand ourselves in light of Scripture. It is God who created us, who designed us, who gave us a purpose and a meaning. It was our rebellion against Him, against His design, that plunged ourselves and all of creation into decay to begin with. It's because of our rebellion that death reigns on this earth. In His great mercy, God sent His Son to become one of us, so that we might in Him be brought into even greater glory than Adam knew. That truth drives me to to wonder and praise every time it comes across my mind that Christ is not, not simply bringing us back to an innocent state of Adam, but He is raising us to higher levels of glory because of what He has done because of what He has done, we are hid with Him, made fellow heirs with Him in His victory and inheritance. There is no glory to be found in rebellion against God. There is no glory to be found in rebellion against His order, His will, or His nature. There is no peace to be found in rebellion against God. There is no lasting and real pleasure to be found in rebellion against God. In Him alone is hope, purpose, peace, and pleasures forevermore. Beloved, we must present a counter-narrative to that which the world is so loudly and consistently screaming from every hilltop. The narrative that they demand everyone must bow to in submission. The church must, through Scripture, provide that counter-narrative, refusing to acknowledge or to accept the lie and stand on what is true. Because the lies of the world are the same as they were from the beginning. Reject what God has said and become as God yourself. They seek their purpose and freedom in rebellion. But we know, we know, we have seen how that must always end. The end of rebellion against God is death, not the life that they are seeking. So beloved, no matter the cost, no matter the pleasure or pressures 
from an unbelieving world, look to Christ. Christ is greater. Christ is our hope. Christ is our salvation. He is our restoration. He is our future. He is our glory. And there is nothing else for us anywhere else. Father, I ask that you would be merciful to us. Anything that I have spoken that may have been unclear, that you could make clear by your Spirit, anything that I may have spoken in air would be wiped from minds. But Father, the truth of the gospel that has been proclaimed, that you would burn that in our hearts and give us life and, and energy and excitement for what your Son has done, for how you created us and how your Son has restored us and what awaits us in glory. Father, don't let us waver even for a moment or consider turning away from the only hope and salvation that is ours, that is offered. Let nothing in this world compete for our affections, compete for our confidence. Father, let Christ be our all. Give us, give us lives that are a testament to the superiority of the gospel. And make us faithful always to proclaim what Christ has done for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.